the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. For this edition of the Oncogene Brief, we sat down with Dr. Robert Orlovsky, who is with the Departments of Lymphoma and Myeloma at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I'm Peter Hovland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncogene Brief. Dr. Orlovsky is the Chairman at Interim Director of Myeloma and Professor of Medicine in the Departments of Lymphoma, Myeloma and Experimental Therapeutics in the Division of Cancer Medicine at MD Anderson. He is board certified in medical oncology and is interested in researching the pathology of novel therapeutic targets and mechanism of drug resistance in myeloma. Dr. Orlowski is also an investigator on numerous clinical trials. Multiple myeloma is a blood cancer that is uncurable and very aggressive. Patients with this disease face recurring patterns of remission and relapse, and there are about 95,000 people in the U.S. right now that are living with multiple myeloma, with some of those patients being in remission, some not. Each year, almost 13,000 patients die from the disease. We asked Dr. Orlowski to share with us some of his thoughts and unique perspective on recent advancements in the treatment of multiple myeloma, including promising results that have come out in a study on a drug called Kyprolis, which has become the first treatment proven to extend the overall survival of patients with relapsed multiple myeloma when compared to the current standard of care. We hear more about the impact of this study and other thought-provoking points from Dr. Orlowski after the break. Welcome, Dr. Orlovsky, to uh, the Oncogene Brief. So, in understanding about uh, multiple myeloma and the treatment of this disease, where are we currently in that process? Well, let me first start by thanking you for having me on Oncogene to talk about this topic because educating the public as well as healthcare providers, patients, and their families is very important. And there have been a lot of developments in multiple myeloma over the past 10 years. I actually think that in the cancer field, we've probably made at least as much, if not more progress in multiple myeloma over the last decade than we have in any other cancer. And to give you one example of that, although we're not yet at the point, unfortunately, where we can cure everyone, the median survival of most newly diagnosed patients currently is about 10 to 15 years And not that long ago, when I got into this field, the average was three years. So that's a huge improvement. And part of that has been because of the approval of a number of new drug classes, and in some cases, of several options within each class. And these are drugs that have made a huge difference in outcomes. I think the categories I would particularly call out Number one are proteasome inhibitors. These are drugs that interfere with protein digestion inside the myeloma cell and causes the cell to die. A second category are what are called immunomodulatory drugs, and these are agents that can stimulate the immune system and also have a direct anti-myeloma effect. 
A third category in particular right now are monoclonal antibodies, and we've got a couple of those that are approved in myeloma. They work by sticking to the surface of the myeloma cell, and they have both direct anti-myeloma effects, and they help to make the myeloma cell more visible to the immune system. And then we've got some of the older categories of chemotherapy drugs that we still use, which include corticosteroids, also alkylating agents, and one of the newer drug classes are also what are called deacetylase inhibitors. And combinations of these now almost give 100% of patients a response to therapy, and the durability of the response is much longer the depth of the response is much greater, the tolerability of therapy is much better than it was in the past, and all of that has translated into better outcomes and also a better quality of life for these patients. Wow, that is uh, definitely very interesting to hear that. Now, when you look at at some of the research and some of the drugs that you uh, were mentioning, um, what are, and I think you alluded to some of that, what are some of the most promising research areas in this case, but also what are some of the most, um, the biggest and most challenging things you're facing in this disease? Definitely a great question, and there are a number of research areas, I think, that are very important. First of all, many of the drugs that have just recently been approved were approved for myeloma that is relapsed or refractory, which means that it has returned after prior therapy. That's what relapsed means or it's refractory, and that means that it's actually growing while on chemotherapy. And we know that myeloma cells in that setting are more aggressive and more difficult to treat. But one of the things that we also know is typically if a drug works very well in the relapsed or the refractory setting, and then we move it up front to newly diagnosed patients, usually those drugs work even better. And so one of the exciting research areas is trying to move some of these new drugs, like the antibodies, to the newly diagnosed setting. That's when the cancer is most sensitive to chemotherapy. And we think, therefore, that that will improve outcomes even further and maybe improve that 10 to 15-year survival estimate that I gave. A second area of research which is still very important, despite all of these great drug classes and new drugs that we have, there are still patients who develop relapsed and refractory disease and then run out of treatment options in terms of the currently approved drugs. So there is still an unmet medical need for new therapies that would be active in that setting. And I think there's a lot of them that look very promising, but I'll just call out a couple. One would be what we call antibody drug conjugates. Right now, the antibodies that we have available are just the antibody by itself. But in an antibody drug conjugate, you attach another molecule, for example, a chemotherapy drug, to the antibody 
So you can have anti-cancer benefit because you have not only the effect of the antibody, but then the drug is released from the antibody, usually into the cancer cell, and can often kill it. So those look very exciting. A second category are what are called these chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. And these have now just gotten approved for childhood leukemia and also leukemia in young adults. We think very soon there will be an approval for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. But similar technology is being explored in multiple myeloma and although the number of patients that have been treated is small and we don't have as long a follow-up on them as we would like, the early results look really promising, including almost 100% response rates even in refractory, difficult-to-treat myeloma. And at least some of those patients are now more than a year out and still in complete remission. So that, I think, is a great area. A third category of drugs that look very interesting are small molecules that inhibit some of the proteins that help myeloma cells to survive. And the best examples are BCL2 and MCL1. BCL2 is one of the targets which is really hit with a drug called venetoclax, and that drug has shown a 40% response rate by itself in one myeloma subgroup. And then there are a number of MCL1 inhibitors that are coming into trials, and those should be good probably for all myeloma patients, but in particular for a group that has amplification of a region of chromosome 1 called 1Q21. So I think the exciting thing there is we're starting to be able to personalize therapy, and I think we'll get to that a little bit later, but we're trying to be able to develop drugs that are good not just for all myeloma patients, but for specific subgroups. And then a fourth area I would say in terms of interesting drugs are a few different types. One is a drug called Selenexor, which blocks the transition or the movement of proteins within cells. And also there are what are called bispecific T-cell engagers, which are kind of like a hybrid molecule between an antibody and a CAR T-cell. So I think these are all being investigated in the relapsed and refractory setting, which, as I mentioned, is the major area of unmet medical need. And I think that they all look very promising so far. Okay. Dr. Orlowski, as you've made very clear, melanoma is a complex disease. Can you further clarify the patient landscape in melanoma, such as the different subtypes of the disease and when it starts to become very difficult to treat, and maybe where we're seeing the largest unmet need for new treatment options? That's a very good question because not all myeloma is the same in every patient. If you do some of the molecular testing, for example, gene expression profiling or sequencing, you can find that there probably are at least eight to 10 different subtypes of the disease. And we're beginning to understand how these different subtypes behave 
and whether there may be particular vulnerabilities for one subtype versus another. One of the most important distinctions is that there are patients who have what's called high-risk myeloma. That's about 15 to 20% of patients in the newly diagnosed setting. These are patients that have certain abnormalities in the myeloma cells. One example is deletion of 17P, which is an area on the short arm of chromosome 17, which typically includes the important tumor suppressor gene P53. But I mentioned earlier the 1Q21 amplification, which is also a high-risk abnormality. So these 15 to 20% of patients have types of myeloma which respond very well to treatment, but unfortunately they don't stay in remission for very long. They tend to relapse more quickly. They often will relapse with disease outside of the bone marrow or bony areas, so-called extramedullary disease. And these are people who do benefit from our novel agents, but still not as much as we would like. And so definitely this is another area of unmet need, namely the high-risk patient population. Okay, and as you've mentioned, multiple myeloma, it's characterized by ongoing remission and relapse. And you shared with us how some of the survival has been increasing in the recent years, but can you clarify a little bit further how long these patients are currently surviving before a relapse or um, how long they're in remission? And how do you think that these numbers are going to change in the coming years, or how do you want to see them change? Well, right now, at least in the United States, there's about 30,000 patients each year who are diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and at least that number, if not more, throughout the rest of the world. And what we do know is because of the aging of the U.S. patient population, myeloma is going to be an increasing problem moving forward. One of the statistics that has been published suggested that between 2010 and 2030, there would be an almost 60%, that's 60% increase in the number of cases of myeloma. And that's a combination, number one, as I mentioned, because this is a disease where typically patients are diagnosed around 65 to 70 years of age and the number of patients in America in that subgroup is larger. There are more people, but there also appears to be a slow increase in the incidence or the proportion of patients per, say, 100,000 who are getting it. The other interesting thing is that, of course, myeloma patients are living longer, which is great because that's what we want, and that's also increasing the number of patients. So all of those three factors really combining for an increase in really the healthcare burden of this disease, which makes it even more important for us to continue to do the research that hopefully will get us to the point that we can cure it. I mentioned earlier that when I first got into this disease, was frankly, I hated myeloma because you had very few options the durability of benefit was very short, 
and the average survival was only about three years. Now we're probably, especially for good risk patients, at the 10 to 15 year range. I still hate myeloma because it's a nasty disease and we don't want people to get it. And actually, talking about research, one of the things that many centers, including MD Anderson, are doing is research to try to understand why some people develop myeloma, because there are two precursor states. One of them is called MGUS, or monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, and the other is smoldering myeloma. We know that most patients with myeloma have one of these precursors, but we can't yet accurately predict on an individual patient basis who will progress and who will not. And even more importantly, we don't know why some people progress and others don't. If we did, first of all, we would be able to better predict who's going to progress and who wouldn't. And second, and even more importantly, if we knew the mechanism of progression, we might be able to intervene and therefore prevent the progression to begin with. And I mentioned earlier that there were 30,000 diagnoses of myeloma per year in the U.S., so it's a relatively smaller cancer, of course, compared to things like breast cancer and colon and prostate. But when you look at MGUS, which is the precursor state, if you look at patients over the age of 40, about 3 to 4% of patients actually can be found to have MGUS. So the population at risk for developing multiple myeloma is quite large, which I think gives a good rationale for understanding progression mechanisms and hopefully eventually getting to the point that we can actually apply prevention approaches. So... Let's go talk a little bit about uh, some of the potential of new treatment options. Um, not so long ago, there was a so-called overall survival analysis of a new drug called Crevilzumab, or it's marketed as uh, Kyprolis. Um, they were recently published. Um, so they, the results actually came from a study called the Endeavor Phase 3 trial. Tell us a little bit about that trial and the importance, and what are you hoping to see, see, see to come out of this study? Well, the Endeavor trial, as you mentioned, was a very important study, and it compared two drugs in one of the classes that I mentioned at the beginning, which are proteasome inhibitors. The proteasome is a molecule or a complex inside cells which is responsible for digesting proteins that maybe are damaged or are no longer needed. So it's kind of each cell's own digestive system, if you will. And bortezomib was the first proteasome inhibitor that was found to be active against myeloma and approved. And carfilzomib was the second. Because the two have some differences in their chemistry, there was the possibility that one was potentially better than another. And one of the really important things about this trial is that it actually compared head-to-head bortezomib with dexamethasone, which is a steroid, to carfilzomib with dexamethasone. And it's rare in the myeloma field 
for head-to-head trials of one therapy to be done versus another therapy because often what will happen is that a randomized trial will look at, for example, a two-drug standard combination versus in the other arm will be the two-drug standard plus a third drug that we think makes the two drugs work better. And usually it's easier to show a benefit comparing three drugs to two drugs than it is two drugs versus two drugs. But in this particular trial, what was actually found in the updated survival analysis that was performed did show that patients who got carfilzomib and dexamethasone had a better response rate, a longer time in remission, and in this analysis, a longer survival than patients who got bortezomib and dexamethasone. And survival is a very important endpoint. There are other drugs that have been approved for multiple myeloma that show that they do put people into remission at a higher rate, but they don't change how long patients live. And so in my mind, the benefit of a drug is less if it doesn't have people living longer. And here we were able to show that the carfilzomib given at a higher dose than had been used before did improve survival compared with bortezomib. And because right now we're at the point where we have so many really excellent treatment options for relapsed or refractory disease, it's even more important to compare one option versus another option because you want to have that information as a patient, as a family member, and as a provider so that we can make the best recommendations for patients as to what they should do next because comparing different studies that were done at different times and with different designs is not really the ideal way. What you really want to do is to have one clinical trial that compares two standard of care directly to each other, and that's really one of the most important trials to get done. So when you talk about the results uh, from this study, the Endeavor trial, um, why is this so important for patients uh, with multiple myeloma? We, of course, want to make sure that patients have many treatment options for their disease. And because there are quite a few of them, it's important to know which of the options are best. And this trial did suggest and really prove that carfilzomib and dexamethasone for people with one to three prior lines of therapy was better than bortezomib and dexamethasone. It also allowed for a direct comparison of side effects because on occasion, if you have to pick between, let's say, two options that even work the same, you may want to know, gosh, will I tolerate one option better than another? And most people probably in that setting would say that they would want to get the therapy that gives them the same benefit but fewer side effects. So one of the positives from this trial was that carfilzomib was shown to have a lower risk of something called peripheral neuropathy, 
And neuropathy can manifest in different ways in different patients, but it can be a numbness or a burning or a tingling or a painful sensation, usually that starts in the fingertips or the toes and can then involve other areas of the body. And it can be anywhere mildly irritating to really all the way up to disabling. And fortunately, disabling is rare, but the carfilzomib-treated patients had a much lower risk of neuropathy. The flip side is there were some increases in the carfilzomib group among a couple of issues. Hypertension was one of them, and so definitely patients on carfilzomib should be monitored closely, and they may have to either start a blood pressure medication if they weren't on one before if their blood pressure goes up, or they may have to have the dose adjusted. And there also was a change in other problems such as something called dyspnea, which can be like a shortness of breath. And that was a little bit increased in the carfilzomib group as well. And so those should be monitored carefully. But I think this is important information, as I mentioned, for the entire field because it allows patients and healthcare providers to make a more informed decision about what should be their next treatment. So, uh, talking about the next treatment, so this is um, the Endeavor trial is a phase three trial, um, and the results are are, are good, uh, so, so to speak. Um, but what is this going to? How is this going to impact uh, the treatment in the future? It definitely means that carfilzomib at the higher dose than was used before, and I mentioned this higher dose concept earlier. The previously approved carfilzomib dose was 20 milligrams per meter squared with the first cycle and then 27 milligrams per meter squared with the second cycle. But in this study, what was done is that the 20 milligram dose was used just for the first two days of cycle one. And then later on, a 56 milligram per meter squared dose was used. So that was able to show that probably the higher dose carfilzomib should be the standard of care. Of course, this wasn't a randomized study comparing the higher dose versus the lower dose, which, by the way, through SWOG, which is one of the cooperative groups in the United States, we just completed that type of comparison, and we're waiting for the data to mature before we present them. But this clearly shows that carfilzomib high dose with DEX is one of the best options in the relapsed setting. And also, you could then make the case that it should be a platform onto which maybe other drugs could be added to hopefully improve the outcome of patients even further. In the past few years, cancer research is really focused in the direction of personalized medicine and the development of patient-targeted therapeutics. First of all, how would you define personalized medicine, and how does that differ from what we'd call targeted therapies? Well, great question, and people may have different answers to this, but I'll give you my take on it. A targeted therapy for me is a drug that has a very well-defined target. And the best example of that is an antibody. 
in myeloma, we have two antibodies that are approved. One of them is daratumumab. The other one is elotuzumab. Daratumumab binds to a protein called CD38, while elotuzumab binds to a protein called SLAMF7. And both of these proteins are expressed on the surface of myeloma cells. And the antibodies, DARA and ELO, as we abbreviate them, don't bind to other proteins. Also, proteasome inhibitors are very targeted because they bind just to certain sites on the proteasome, but not to other proteins in the body that are involved in protein digestion. And the same is true with immunomodulatory drugs they actually typically have to bind to a protein called cereblon for them to be able to work. Now, they are targeted because the target, again, is very well defined, but so far, we have been using them in all patients with myeloma, even though I mentioned earlier that there are probably 8 to 10 or maybe even more different subtypes. So to me, even though they're targeted, they are not necessarily personalized because we use them in every patient. To me, personalized medicine means that we do some kind of study, usually a molecular study like gene expression profiling or sequencing, that tells us something specific about the type of disease within each patient, and then we select the therapy particularly for that patient. And I think one of the best examples I had also mentioned earlier, which is venetoclax, which has that 40% response rate in patients with the 1114 translocation and a much, much lower response rate in patients that have myeloma without that translocation. So that to me seems like a personalized therapy because I probably would not give it to somebody who doesn't have the 1114 translocation, but if they do, it's definitely the right way to go. And I think as we move forward and understand the biology of myeloma better, we need to make combinations of these targeted therapies and of these personalized therapies, because right now we tend to use the same playbook for every patient with myeloma, even though we know that not all of them have the same type of myeloma. And I think the next big leap in trying to improve outcomes is going to be making sure that we treat each patient's myeloma according to what therapy would be best for the individual rather than for myeloma generically. So staying on the topic of personalized medicine and targeted therapies, what research areas are you most excited for in this space, whether that be in melanoma or any other research area? Well, the chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapies are very exciting, which I touched on earlier. These are also very personalized because right now the way the system works with these CAR T-cells is that each patient has their T-cells removed. Those T-cells are then altered in a laboratory to express a protein or a receptor on their surface, which allows them to better recognize the myeloma cell. And then after they're expanded, 
those same T cells are put back into that patient. So actually getting back their own cells, so that's a very personalized approach. It may be in the future that there will be donor cells available that can go from one donor into many patients. That would be an allogeneic CAR T-cell approach. But right now, the autologous approach is the way that people are moving. And the targets that have mostly been gone after are what are called either BCMA for B-cell maturation antigen or SLAMF7, which is the target for elotuzumab. And these are very good targets because they are highly expressed on myeloma cells, but are virtually absent from other cells in the body. And that's important because these T cells would attack any target which expresses the protein that they're directed against. So, for example, if BCMA were on heart tissue, the T cells would probably attack the heart. But fortunately, that's not the case. BCMA is almost exclusively on myeloma cells and plasma cells, and so that's why it's really an excellent target in this area. So let's shift gear a little bit. Um, the Endeavor trial is a clinical trial, and there are some concerns about clinical trials, and that has to do with the limited number, I think in the United States, is I think less than 5% of the potential participants that are actually uh, going to participate or willing to participate in a clinical trial. Um, some of them may actually benefit directly from participating. So how can we um, get more people uh, to participate? And, and, and the, go, grabbing back a little bit to the concerns people have is that uh, they think that instead of having an active drug, a trial drug that's being used, they may get a placebo a sugar pill that is not working um, factually that's not true um, but how can patients be um, educated to participate this is a hugely important area because as you noted a very small proportion of patients go on clinical trials and that is something that if we could change would be hugely helpful for a number of reasons, but most importantly, the only way to know if a new drug or a new combination is better than something else is to put it into one of these trials. And the longer it takes to do the enrollment and get the answer, the longer it takes before the new drug hopefully is found to be effective and approved. So if we could put more patients on trials, we could get more new drugs and more effective therapies to patients. In terms of trying to help improve enrollment, first of all, part of that really is on the investigators and on our industry colleagues, because sometimes we write trials that have inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria that are very strict, and sometimes even quite healthy patients turn out not to be eligible because of relatively small and probably unimportant factors. So the first thing, we all have to look in the mirror and say, gosh, what can we do to change the way the trials are written so that we don't compromise safety, but that we think more about the real-world patient 
because there are people out there who want to go on trials, and then it turns out that they're not eligible for them. So in, 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 in general, I mean, when you talk about trials, this is, of course, very important, is, is what do uh, patients and maybe their loved ones need to know about the potential of participation in a clinical trial? Well, great question. And you mentioned earlier one of the concerns that often comes up when you talk about trials to patients, which is whether they're going to be on a placebo or not. And the good news is that in the cancer field, we, of course, don't think that it's ethical to have patients be on a placebo by itself. So you would never be on a trial with no therapy or with a sugar pill. What does sometimes happen is that when we do these randomized studies, like the Endeavor trial was, the Endeavor trial didn't have this, but what some trials do, and I mentioned this earlier, they compare two drugs versus three drugs. Sometimes what is done is that the two-drug arm, instead of just having nothing as the third, they get a placebo as that third drug, and the rationale then is that the doctors and the patients are blinded to what treatment the patient is receiving. And the reason to do that is because, of course, we all want new drugs to be approved because we want our patients to do better. And sometimes a concern that we may be biased and if we know that the patients are on the new drug, we may somehow feel that they're doing better than the patients who are not getting the new drug. And by doing the blinding, that concern is no longer there. Importantly, though, those patients are still getting the standard of care. They're just not getting the experimental drug. They're getting a placebo instead of that but they are getting something that would be considered a standard. Another concern that I hear quite often from patients and families is about the cost of clinical trials. And that's a very important topic that should be talked about between the patient and their family and the research team. Typically what happens is that the new drug that is being tried is given for free but there still may be some costs associated with the trial. For example, of course, you may have to come to the clinic or the medical center for treatment more often maybe than you might otherwise. Some trials do include reimbursement for those expenses, but others do not. So that's always an important topic to talk about. And all of this, by the way, including whether a placebo is involved or not, should be in the consent form. And I know the consent forms often can be quite long and not exactly anybody's favorite reading at the end of the day, but it is important for everybody who is thinking about a trial to look at that, evaluate it, and make sure that they get any questions that they have about it answered before they sign on to a clinical trial. So in all, it is uh, a good practice to uh, inquire if there is a clinical trial that may be able to, to help you as a patient or if you're a loved one of a patient to actually inquire about the opportunities uh, for a clinical trial. Oh, definitely. I, I think sometimes people feel that clinical trials are kind of 
what you do when you've run out of options and it's sort of the last thing that you do. But in a disease like multiple myeloma, which as I mentioned at the beginning, we still don't cure, there are clinical trials even for patients with newly diagnosed myeloma. For example, I mentioned daratumumab, which is a great drug for relapsed disease. Right now, there are many trials looking at that drug in the newly diagnosed setting. And why wouldn't you want to be part of a trial like that when you have the opportunity to add a drug that has already shown great benefit for patients in the relapsed setting, and instead you can get that at no charge for the newly diagnosed patient, and maybe you could even be put into such a long-lasting remission that it could be years and years before there's a relapse. So I think the benefit of trials is that you get access to drugs that we already think are very exciting in myeloma. Sometimes, of course, people do worry that, gosh, I'm going to be experimented upon. And unfortunately, even the standard therapies are a bit of an experiment because we don't know how well they're going to work until we actually give them. So it's still an experiment whether you're on a trial or not, but often the trial will give you access to a new drug that might have you get a better outcome. So that's something that is only a win-win for everybody. So, so as a last question, I mean, we've uh, seen over uh, the last couple of weeks a lot of devastation caused in Houston by the hurricanes. Uh, you are uh, with MD Anderson. You are based in that area. Um, what is the situation right now for the hospital? But what is the impact also on patients? And I must say the, the images that we've seen on television, is they're really devastating. So how, how are you guys doing there? Well, I really appreciate your bringing that up. And of course, we want to also send our best wishes to the folks in Florida and Puerto Rico and the Caribbean who've been hit by other hurricanes. Houston did take quite a hit and had quite a bit of flooding. MD Anderson, fortunately, is back to full operations. So any patient who needs to or wants to come is welcome and we have the facilities to take care of them. We were, I would say, somewhat lucky in Houston because there was very minimal loss of life. People are still displaced and they're still out of their homes in many cases. We've had very great support from donors all around the world and all around the country and even from some of our industry partners to make sure that we could get our myeloma and other cancer patients the therapy that they need. And I'm proud to say that we've not had any compromised outcomes among our patients because of the weather. And I have to say, we really had some heroes who stepped up incredibly during that time, including some faculty who actually waded through flooded streets to get to the hospital to be able to take care of patients who were in the hospital at that time. And I think it really has brought out the best of everybody in the MD Anderson community and in the Houston and Texas area at large. Not something we want to go through with again, but I think the response has been tremendous and really heartwarming. 
Well, it's definitely good to know that you are uh, and the MD Anderson family are doing uh, uh, okay. Thank you for uh, your uh, participation in the broadcast, uh, the Oncotine Brief. All right, thank you very much again for the opportunity to be a part of this. The interview you just heard with Dr. Orlowski was originally recorded on September 29, 2017. For more information about the trial and others, you can reach out to the Ask MD Anderson team. The team will help you answer your questions and give you the most accurate information, as well as link you to credible resources to your specific questions. You could reach Ask MD Anderson team at 1-888-465-8534. That's 1-888-465-8534. The Ask MD Anderson team will also be able to help you find which clinical trials are offered at MD Anderson and help you determine which trial may be right for you or your loved one. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland here with Sonia Portillo. And this is the Yonkers in Brief. The Yonkers in Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Yonkers Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her 